Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsors our coverage of the upcoming Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in person in Washington, D.C. next week. Later in the program, our roundtable on the week on world markets, both defense and commercial. But first... Washington and the world were stunned yesterday to hear that General Ray Odierno, the 38th Chief of Staff of the United States Army, passed away at age 67 after a battle with cancer. General Odierno was truly a larger-than-life figure, a true leader, uh, with an imposing frame and a keen intellect and an ability to connect with everybody he met uh, and a sense of humor that could have given him a second career as a comedian if he'd chosen to exercise it. He was also a soldier soldier who spent more than four years of his life in combat in Iraq alone. Joining us is someone who knew him well since their days, earliest days as plebes at the United States Military Academy at West Point and served together throughout their careers and were working hard together for a gift worthy of their class until General Odierno's passing. Uh, he is retired United States Army Lieutenant General Guy Swan, the former commanding general of U.S. Army North, who is now uh, the Vice President of Education at the Association of the United States Army. Sir, thanks so very, very much for joining us Joining us in our deepest sympathies and condolences. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Good to be with you. you you've known Ray Ordierno uh, since 1972. You're, you're both from New Jersey, growing up about 20 minutes uh, from, from one another, uh, and then served together throughout your entire uh, careers. What will Ray Ordierno's legacy be? Ray, Ray was the leader of our class uh, in so many ways. Our class was very distinguished. We had uh, s- several other senior uh, army leaders come out of our class, but Ray was literally and figuratively head and shoulders above the rest of the class. Uh, that uh, you know that couldn't be uh, more true, right? I mean, people ascribe the larger than life figure to people, uh, whereas General Rodierno was that way. He's he's somebody who will be sorely missed, but always somebody who will be remembered. Um, in terms of his legacy as 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 the chief, as a soldier, he touched so many people's lives. What do you, what do you think that um, lasting legacy, right, as as a soldier reflecting on another soldier? Yeah, he, he was. He was a, a compassionate leader. Uh, I worked for him in Iraq as his uh, chief of staff when he was the uh, four-star commander in Iraq in 2008 and 2009. And I got to see him up close and personal uh, on a daily basis and, and observe a, a remarkable leader uh, who could operate and and work with senior leaders at the strategic level, right up to the White House, as well as later in the day, spending time with soldiers in the field. It was a remarkable thing to see. Uh, and that's that's probably one of the, the major things that I'll remember about Ray. He could operate across the entire spectrum from the foot soldier on the ground, right up to the commander in chief uh, and in a compassionate a determined way uh, that just just gave everyone around him great confidence. 
Um, one of the important attributes as a leader is an ability also to change uh, and to change with with the job. Um, he was, uh, I think, by his own admission, uh, uh, a little bit on the uh, aggressive side in the early uh, part of the Iraq war, but then became one of the folks who became a primary exponent and an executor of uh, the counterinsurgency, the, the, the more subtle strategy. Uh, when he became the army chief, he was very, very passionate about the size of the force and the importance of having a big army. How was uh, General Erdierno, right? How did, how did you see that up close, that ability to flex depending on what the job was that needed to be done? Right. As you mentioned, Vago, we came into the army uh, in the immediate days after Vietnam uh, when the army was moving away from counterinsurgency and back to uh, what we now call great power competition with the Soviet Union. So our early days as uh, young officers, uh, mid-career officers, was uh, large-scale military operations. But when we got into Iraq, we found the conditions there much different. And you're right, General Odierno went in as a division commander, uh, trained in large-scale operations, but throughout his 50-plus months, in Iraq uh, at all levels, two, three, and four-star level, he did uh, moderate his uh, views. He did adapt to the environment, uh, which was something that we all learned from, uh, frankly, as we worked with him. And then as the Army Chief of Staff, he was, uh, he was the chief at a time when we were coming out of Iraq and having to reassess the future of the Army, and he was, he was very much involved in that effort as well. And, and you can see his mark on a lot of the programs uh, and a lot of the initiatives that the Army um, has been working. Um, you, you have more personal stories than you can, you can probably recount uh, about uh, General Odierno, but what's the one story you think that best illustrates who he was, his leadership, uh, his personality? I, uh, one that comes to mind was we were in Iraq together during the, the run-up to the 2008 election. Uh, when uh, President Obama was elected. And in fact, Senator Obama visited us uh, during that period, during the campaign period. And to see how General Odierno literally coached a new president uh, into the position of commander in chief was a remarkable thing to see. And that was followed up by various video conferences after President Obama came into office and just to see uh, a, a president uh, respond to a senior army leader like Ray Odierno, just uh, as I mentioned, bred real confidence uh, for the new president in, in his army and those leading the army. But his interaction with uh, uh, Senator Obama and then President Obama was quite remarkable to see. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, sir, General Odierno was somebody uh, who did touch everybody he came into contact with. He was very generous uh, with his time at AUSA. Obviously, he would always make time uh, for, you know, other senior leaders, senior leaders from around the world, political leaders, industry leaders. He always had time for media, uh, whether it was to do sit down interviews or whether he'd tell you, hey, walk with me. I've got five minutes until we get to my next, you know, what's what's on your mind, you know, Um and, and the most powerful thing was also seeing a meeting with small groups of soldiers or individually with soldiers and even very, very junior soldiers uh, who had served uh, with him or wanted some of his time. Um, tell us a little bit about the class of 76 
uh, gift. Your upcoming 45th um, uh, reunion will be a hard one, as you all remember somebody who was a leader in your class. But your 50th anniversary gift uh, to uh, West Point is going to be truly meaningful and touch generations of cadets, which is very befitting, uh, not just your great class, sir, but also uh, General Odierno. Talk to us a little bit about that gift. Yes, our, our class is coming up on its 45th reunion in another week or so, and the loss of Ray Odierno will, will, will be remembered uh, during that reunion. But we're also working on a class gift for our 50th reunion coming up in 2026. And that will be, uh, we'll be dedicating the atrium of the new cyber and engineering academic building that's being constructed at West Point. This is a, a magnificent facility that will touch every cadet. Uh, I was working with Ray along with a number of other classmates on the gift committee. And we decided today to keep Ray on the gift committee and his name will be uh, forever uh, link to this class gift that we will present uh, to the Military Academy in 2026. Uh, a fitting legacy for our class, but also for Ray Odierno. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, we should point out that he was also a first class engineer uh, in, in, in his own right, right? Everybody thinks of him as the chief of staff uh, of the army, but we should also say he was a field artilleryman in the beginning of his career. You were an armor officer. Uh, and, so, uh, and he was a nuclear engineer. Uh, that, to, that's right. Put a finer point on it. Yes. <laughs> Um, at, at a time when I think people have a tendency of forgetting actually the the kind of nuclear skill set that existed in the senior army ranks, uh, actually, uh, in part because so much of the tactical nuclear force uh, existed in field artillery and, and elsewhere. But that's a it's more of a historical a, subject. We're 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 looking ahead to uh, AUSA, sir. Uh, General Bob Brown, the former Pacific uh, Army Pacific Commander, uh, has replaced Carter Ham, who, after a lifetime of service to the United States Army, has uh, retired. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what the theme for this year's show will be, and General Brown's priorities as he as he steps into the new job. Yes, Vago, uh, we are very very proud to have General Bob Brown uh, to be our incoming president of AUSA after a tremendous tour by General Carter Ham. Uh, this week's AUSA annual meeting will be General Brown's debut uh, as our president. Uh, the theme for this year's annual meeting is America's Army and its people transforming for the future. And that's a reflection of the current Army Chief of Staff, uh, General Jim McConville's focus on people. And you'll hear a lot of discussion this week about the Army's most precious resource, its people, uh, soldiers, civilians, family members, veterans and retirees. Uh, and that will be an overarching theme for this week for both uh, the Army and for General Brown. Sir, thanks so very much again for spending uh, time with us uh, today. Our uh, deepest uh, sympathies uh, to you and everybody knew General Odierno and our deepest condolences uh, to Linda Odierno and the Odierno family. Um, is there any, are there any family requests? I know that there are a lot of people who will listen to this uh, who've known General Odierno and were touched by him who may want uh, to become involved. Is there anywhere they can go for information? If any friends or classmates or others who knew General Odierno want to send any thoughts of sympathy to Linda, his wife, and, and his three children, 
they can write to uh, Mrs. Linda Odierno at P.O. Box 5175, Pinehurst, North Carolina, 28374. Uh, that's, uh, that would be most welcome by Linda and her children. I would note, too, that while General Odierno was a four-star general, former Army Chief of Staff, he was also a great father, a great husband, and a great friend. Uh, many may know or may not know that his own son was wounded in combat. So he was vested not only as a leader, but also as a family man uh, in the conflicts that our Army's been involved in over the last 20 years. Uh, and, and certainly a family that continues um, an extraordinary spirit of service. Sir, thanks very, very much. Look forward to seeing you uh, at uh, AUSA and, and looking forward to a very successful show and a remembrance of uh, a great American leader and patriot. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Motors Defense is sponsoring our coverage of technology. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And joining us now to discuss the week on world markets are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch and Richard Avalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Uh, the third of our musketeers, Sash Tusa of Agency Partners in London, is unfortunately unable uh, to join us uh, this week. And it's the first time that he hasn't been able to do so uh, in, in very, very many months as we've uh, struggled through this pandemic. Ron and Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. As always, Vago, great to be here. Thanks. It's our pleasure, and we'll uh, do 30% additional to make up for Sash's uh, absence. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it, exactly. But uh, God willing, Sash will be able to join us next week. Uh, Ron, walk us through the macroeconomic picture. Another interesting uh, week on the street. Uh, always uh, different dynamics and factors. We have a temporary uh, uh, increase in the nation's uh, borrowing limit, uh, maybe a smaller uh, progressive democratic uh, package. Uh, but yet, um, you know, we, we didn't solve the debt problem. We haven't solved any of these budget issues. Uh, and there are some on the street who are looking at this or, or not, as the case may be. Walk us through what was uh, driving, right? We had employment figures that came out as well. Walk us through what investors had on their minds this week. Yeah, the, the, the employment numbers came in, um, I think, you know, lower than what people were looking for. Um, that was one factor. I think some eyes were on on the Hill, but I don't think anybody realistically thought that, you know, the U.S. would default on the debt and so on and so forth. I, I think the real driver has been, you know, concerns over inflation. Um, you're, you're hearing, you know, a couple of things, concern over inflation, other supply chain issues and shortages, uh, and what implications that has across a multitude of sectors, right? So it's, it's not just aerospace, it's not just industrials, but it's a, it's a much broader um, issue. You've probably seen in the popular press, there's been discussions about if you want to get Christmas presents order them now, because they won't be here at Christmas time, that all the shelves will be empty again. And, you know, you know some uh, smaller level of shortages in grocery stores and so on and so forth. But so I think that's one of the themes that's, that's driving markets. Uh, if you look back on the, uh, the, the inflation theme, uh, this week, the 10-year yield, something we talk about every week, is above 1.6%. So, um, we went from about 1.1% to 1.6% in a two-month period of time and on a percentage basis. That's a big move. Um, and I think there's some expectation you're going to see that continue to climb. So as the yield curve steepens, 
um, you know, how do you position and, and look at things um, you know, relative to that is what's going through investors' minds. I would say specifically in A&D, it was a, an interesting week in that defense really massively outperformed. Uh, if you look at commercial aerospace and call it Boeing as the bellwether, it was roughly flat on the week. Some of the smaller cap names in, in commercial aerospace, some of the suppliers, they were actually actually down on the week. Um, but defense, uh, just look at a couple of big bellwethers. Northrop Grumman was up almost 8% on the week. Uh, all three Harris was up uh, over 6%. Uh, Raytheon, which is kind of, you know, a 50-50 mix at this point, came in right in the middle around 3.5%. Um, so it was really um, a good week for defense. And I think that's a couple factors. Um, defense, for whatever reason, historically, when you look at um, these, these, these debt negotiations and discussions and headlines, tends to underperform into it and outperform through it. Um, that might not be the causality, but that's the history. And then I think the other factor is a lot of the discussion around things heating up in the Pacific Rim, the flights over Taiwan, the impact that has on um, uh, the tech sector beyond just A&D. I think that's starting to get into investors' minds. So it does seem like there's a little bit of a fire lit under the defense names right now. And uh, whenever you have 150 uh, Chinese fighters, bombers, maritime uh, patrol aircraft and the like sort of charging toward Taiwanese airspace on a daily basis, it, it has a tendency of sort of people go like, holy cow, you know, um, this um, and, and certainly news flow would indicate people's uh, concern that something inadvertently could happen. And we discussed that on the Friday uh, roundtable. I should point out to our audience, um, you know, I've been doing the COVID fatality countdown, 712,000 Americans at least. Uh, have died in this pandemic and about uh, 4.8 million um, around the world since um, since it began. Uh, began. Richard, walk us through uh, commercial headlines. You know, AirAsia made news, Jet2 made news, and certainly Tim Clark's, uh, Tim Clark, the Emirates uh, CEO, uh, somebody who has a reputation of speaking whatever it is that's on his mind, um, you know, had some very, very tough comments to make about delays uh, on the 777X program. Uh, the company was one of the launch customers uh, for this uh, new and improved version of the 777. Uh, and so, you know, Emirates is also keeping A380s in service. Walk us through these commercial headlines. And Ron, want to get your take as well. Yeah, lots of interesting news, you know, with the uh, jet to go and um, AirAsia news. It's, it's pretty well confirmed here uh, that, you know, the A321neo is carving out a wonderful future for itself. Um, it, it just seems that from a, whether you're uh, a legacy major carrier or a low cost international carrier like AirAsia X, this plane really does represent the future in terms of route fragmentation. It's quite the enabler. And uh, again, Boeing just continues to sort of fly quietly horizontal. They're, you know, talking about digital, which is wonderful because digital implies the desire to do something new and appointing new people like Linda Hapgood to the digital operations side of things. That's wonderful, but they're not actually out there talking about a new product. And what continues to be frustrating is not just the requirement for a new Boeing product to compete with the increasingly successful A321neo, it's the fact that the A321neo isn't all that good for that job. It's got the wrong wing. It's not size right, got the wrong engines. It's in the right place at the right time. But if Boeing launched a new clean cheap pro sheet product, they would do incredibly well and they just aren't. So the future goes to the good enough plane, the 321neo. And, you know, well over 3,500 on order probably lots more coming as a lot of carriers follow the carriers this week and decide, hey, this is a tremendous enabler and it's our future. 
triple seven nine, not such good news. You know, Tim Clark of Emirates had before referred to concerns about delays, even throwing out there the idea that it might be a 2025 entry into service about three years late. Uh, but now he's talking about performance issues. That's a different kettle of fish. That's a real concern, especially since, uh, as we've noted uh, previously, Boeing has some real, well, technical execution problems in pretty much all of its programs. So maybe this one won't be different. That's really concerning because the 777 historically has been a, well, a killer product for them and uh, dominant in its class. And uh, well, performance issues obviously would jeopardize that. In the meantime, they are keeping the H380. And, and that's an interesting comment too, because the way things were looking a few years ago, the idea of the H380 continuing to exist, even if it were free in a world where the 779 was available as advertised, was simply ridiculous. In other words, it, it was instantly a chunk of obsolete metal because the 779 looked so good. But now there's doubts about that and they're keeping the 380 and maybe they won't be instantly obsoleted by the arrival of a far more technologically superior twin jet. Uh, Ron, your sense on all that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree uh, with Richard. I mean, you, one of the areas you really do want to see uh, Boeing succeed is in the wide body market because it's a segment of the market where they've always been been strong. You know, the 787 um, has, has been very well liked by airlines, still is well liked by airlines. In fact, it's very frustrating to airlines and lessors right now because the airline, you know, airplanes aren't being shipped. You know, I talked to one prominent lessor this week and uh, they suggested of the, you know, maybe eight or so airplanes that they wanted to get this year, they might just get one and they find it exceedingly frustrating. You know, that doesn't help, you know, the brand equity of Boeing with, with airlines, you know, but, but it's an airplane folks want. The 777, uh, like Richard said, is I mean, truly uh, uh, a loved airplane. You know, the 777-300ER, I mean, it's hard to think of an airplane in its class that's been more successful than that. Um, so one would hate to see, you know, that the 777 franchise get um, somehow impaired because of technical issues or so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, it's my, my, my hope that they can, they can straighten it out and, um, and that, you know, Mr. Clark over at, um, at Emirates is, uh, you know, you know, helping them get it in the right direction. Um, cause you'd hate to see that franchise get, get impaired. Um, it's interesting to note too, however, that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion that, you know, the next airplane we've talked about it, the next airplane would be, um, you know, a triple seven X freighter. Um, and the, the rumor is right. That's been in the press that, you know, they'll launch that at the uh, Dubai air show. Um, and maybe that's just a sign of the times, but ultimately, you know, it's, it, it's, it is odd to see a freighter version of an airplane come out at roughly the same time as the passenger version. Um, so I don't know if that speaks to, you know, an, an accelerated timeline of the lifespan of the airplane or, or what, but, um, you know, the wide body segment of the market is, um, you know, Boeing stronghold and, you know, it's key. It's a key, key, key franchise, uh, franchises for the company. So you really, really, really would hate to see them, um, lose um, share and momentum there. Uh, dude, let me um, ask about the convergence of news flow on the 777X program this week. I mean, I, I, I hate to keep bringing up these, these Boeing performance problems. Uh, and again, um, you know, we're, we're doing it because alas, it's out there and we have to discuss this. Uh, I know that's very, very hard for uh, friends, uh, friends of ours at, at Boeing. Um, Starliner delay. 
uh, Ron, how does that play into the narrative and Richard kind of get, get your sense on that? I mean, it is a giant company and it is executing well on a lot of other programs, right? So, but I mean, some of these do become sort of totemic, especially in the minds of investors or, or not. Well, it's, it's just, it's under the, under the microscope really. Right. I mean, you know, I think, you know, one of the byproducts of what happened with Max is maybe things that wouldn't be as noticed or thought about in the past are now being looked at more. So you look at the financial impact of Starliner, you know, in the scope of the Boeing company, it's not that big a program, but in the, the narrative, oh, this is just another one that's not you know, executing right. It doesn't, it doesn't help, right? So it's just, it, it adds to the narrative, but in the, you know, the broader financial picture, um, at least in the short term, it's not all that meaningful. But if you, if you pull back the aperture and you say, well, all right, well, you know, SpaceX, they're, they're doing it. Um, it's working for them. Um, and you know, if space is really the next, you know, pardon the pun, the next frontier, um, then, and you have new competitors who are executing, uh, it just makes you scratch your head on, you know, ultimately what, you know, Boeing's role in space will be longer term. Yeah, complete agreement with Ron, of course. You know, I mean, there are a couple of issues. One narrative that's definitely emer emerging is that the whole establishment of Boeing HQ in Chicago was sort of this, uh, the start of, uh, well, a complete removal of management from technical concerns, resource concerns, and everything operational with the various units. And uh, I think there's a degree of truth to that narrative. And Starliner is just another data point. The other is that, boy, new space, new arrow, you know, there's a limited pool of really good, motivated, technical talent. And uh, Boeing seems to have resource issues there. And whether it's the amount of, whether it's working conditions, the amount of money they're willing to spend, or merely poaching by the new guys, I think that's going to weigh on the, their ability to technically execute moving forward as well. So there's all kinds of issues here. Uh, it's not, as, as Ron says, it's not just Starliner, it's, it's the bigger picture behind it. And Vago, one, one point I'm going to add to that, and I think it's a really important point that Richard brings up. When you think about talent, it's, you know, and as we've discussed before, there's, you know, other things you know, that a young or older engineer can go do um, that might be more interesting than what they're currently doing at one of the, you know, the, the legacy companies, but they can also get paid a lot more. You know, one of the data points I did pick up in discussions this week are, are many of the startups because they are flush with cash from the financing processes are, are, are poaching people, not just with the work they can do, but, you know, with the money you can make doing it. So it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of, it's a, it's a really difficult hurdle for a legacy player who's just going to rely on you know their their name or whatever to try to attract talent um well, if i could just add one thing to that go ahead uh you know the, the mindset that's been prevalent at boeing since uh, jim mcnerney took the reins as ceo uh he's long since left but the mindset persists is it's a sort of a one-trick management note which is crush unions <laughs> you know it's, that was what he was all about and of course even legendary for the uh, the open mic moment was like the workers will still be cowering you know and yeah, you can you can be anti-union, you can be pro-union, but in a time where actually talent has the upper hand in terms of negotiations, then taking this basically this is merely a commodity. Let's crush them. Uh, that attitude is catastrophic. Uh, well, I mean, what I think is really interesting in the in this economy, uh, right? Um, 
it's it's stunning if you were a young engineer, and I think why so many people aren't attracted now to science, right? Climatologically, that's an interesting engineering problem. You're looking you know, whether or not we on this program, whatever we think about, uh, you know, air taxis, that's kind of an exciting thing. You've got Tesla and Blue Origin and a number of other companies, and it's about rocketry uh, and going into space. And then you've now got, you know, electric cars. It, it's not just Tesla. Everybody is in an electrical revolution, whether it's General Motors or Ford or Mercedes-Benz. So there's a lot of interesting stuff you can do. Each one of these have cyber elements. I mean, you know, it's not just going to a commercial aerospace contractor and it's not just going to uh, a defense contractor in order to do sort of interesting, rewarding potential work, right? I mean, from your standpoint, Ron, talk about the competition for talent. I mean, it's, it's kind of stunning how much is actually going on around the world that if you were a young engineer, whether on the software side or the electrical side or the mechanical side or the chemical side, or the ne- I mean, it's just kind of an unbelievable time to be an engineer, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's very true. And um, if you look at the ranks of engineers, I mean, the, the number of students graduating in engineering degrees, I could get you the exact number, but you know, it hasn't like you've seen this big boon in engineering, right? Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it really is definitely a good time to be um, an engineer. And then, and then further, what I might add, uh, kind of more on the corporate level, the companies that are really focused carefully on uh, you know, a, a talent recruiting strategy and um, uh, you kind of you know, worked on it for years and um, really tried to make it bloom um, are, are doing better. I think you know, one company, and I've mentioned this before, that seems to do quite well on the the human talent side is uh, um, on the, you know, the intellectual side is is Northrop Grumman, um, but they've worked really hard at it for a long time. You know, they just didn't you know come up with a, a strategy one year and change everything. It's it's something that they've cultivated very carefully over over a long period of time. Uh, and and we certainly know that uh, you know Northrop Grumman is is one of our sponsors, and actually they uh, pay a lot of attention to the human capital side of things, uh, certainly on the uh, on the cyber uh, side of the equation as well. Um, let's let's move on. Uh, National Business uh, Aviation Association is having its big show uh, next week, Ron, in sunny Las Vegas. So you're going to be there uh, in uh, person, and then the Association of the United States Army uh, is going to have their uh, big symposium, as we heard from. General Swan uh, at the top of the show, and indeed, uh, all of us who are going to be attending will uh, remember General uh, Odierno. Uh, uh, you know, it will be a great opportunity uh, to to remember a great man and an event that was so important to him, and and vice versa. Um, Ron, walk us through the news flow we expect to see at NBAA. Uh, and then Richard, I want to get your take on AUSA and you can cross over on each of these, right? I mean, they're going to be the Florida, the future uh, long range assault aircraft Our Bell, our sponsor uh, is obviously very vested in that program. But I think that's going to be one of the, the major uh, items of discussion at this show, certainly a focus on the Pacific and indeed the new uh, Association of the United States Army president and CEO, uh, Bob Brown, General Bob Brown was former commander of US Army Pacific. Uh, and on the commercial aviation side, we've got the G400, G800, as well as some Textron and other products that are going to be coming out. Ron, start us off on NBAA. And what do you think the big news is going to be? Yeah, I think, I think you know, a, a lot of it came out already, right? So, you know, Gulfstream with their announcement of the two new airplanes uh, a week ago, um, you know, that, that's part of it. Interestingly enough, you know, Gulfstream won't be attending the show. 
you know, they, they've taken a little bit of a different strategy this year, I think largely because of COVID concerns. Uh, you know, my understanding was they set up little micro, micro COVID bubbles and they did, you know, approach customers very personally and uh, brought the, you know, their kit to them uh, in, an, in an effort to sell aircraft. And we'll see how successful that was you know, in this upcoming quarter. I suspect it was successful, but we'll see. Um, Textron will have something to say. They always do. Um, they have a nice stable of aircraft. So I would imagine they'll be announcing some, uh, some you know, uh, you know, tweaks, if not more. Um, and then don't forget, they have a broad line, everything from turboprops all the way up. So we'll see what they have to say. Um, uh, we know uh, what this DSO has got out there. Uh, I think it'll be interesting in that the industry is coming together at a time where um, yeah, I think business aviation, the, uh, the tone and tenor of the market, uh, it's it's good, right? It's, uh, you know, the, the, the industry hasn't been um, with this much momentum and, and good feel for quite a long time, probably since the financial crisis, pre-financial crisis. So bringing the industry together at a good time, um, I would imagine will generate some fun headlines and um, hopefully some orders at the show, so on and so forth. But um, this should be uh, a NBAA um, that's positive on all fronts, bringing everybody together for the first time in a while and bringing everybody together at a time when the industry is feeling good. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to going. I'll be hanging out um, a bunch at the static, going around, uh, talking to a lot of companies and then touring the, uh, the, the booths on the inside. Um, so um, should be should be a good good show, I would think. Richard, what are, yeah, what are the interesting themes from your standpoint? Well, it's all very interesting. I wish I could be there, but between AUSA and the fact that my daughter hasn't been vaccinated just yet, I'm not quite ready to go out to the bigger conventions. And even at AUSA, I'm probably going to stay on the sidelines for that reason. And, and uh, either way, I think Ron's exactly right. You know, it's only a question of, um, well, how much traction uh, the new fantastic market numbers get, I guess, how much stickiness there is to the new market participants, because all of the indicators for business jet demand in terms of utilization and, of course, the, the surrounding macroeconomics like corporate profits and equities markets all look fantastic. And the number of used jets, I mean, you can't get a, a new used jet, a five or four year old jet. It's, it's really hard. And pricing is starting to go up, too. So it's, it's really just a question of how long this lasts and how long it takes for manufacturers to be emboldened by it to raise production rates. We've had you know, like 13, 14 years of false starts of higher rates after, you know, the, the post 2008, uh, you know, decade plus has, was, was just a series of disappointments, but we've never seen numbers uh, this good in, in many years. So I suspect there'll be some interesting talks about, well, maybe it's time to think about raising rates and, you know, without getting hopefully burned the way they were in 2015. Uh, and of course, plenty of new market action, you know, new product action, you know, with the, the Falcon 10X and of course now the new Gulf Streams. Um, you may hear more. Uh, and of course, that's always been sort of a, a self-perpetuating virtuous loop, if you will. You know, new products are symptomatic of good times and new products also stimulate good times because they generate customer interest. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing great headlines this week from NBAA. And um, at, at your, Ron, did you have anything you want to add? Yeah, one point I might add uh, to Richard's uh, comment, just to, you know, to peel back the onion a little bit. In fact, if you look at uh, available for sale aircraft, used aircraft for sale, 
in the call it, you know zero to ten year cohort, right? So you know relatively young aircraft aircraft that would you know quote unquote be competitive with new aircraft. Um, you're actually at pre-financial crisis levels of inventory. Um, and you know, we haven't seen that in a long time, <laughs> you know, you know, very long time. So it's just, you know, another indicator of you know, how um, that market is, um, you know, set up to do better, most likely. Um, Richard, talk to us uh, about the engine change on the V280 and what do you think it means? Yeah, AUSA is going to be an interesting show this week because, uh, you know, for a while, frankly, I've been poo-pooing FBL. I just didn't see how the Army could afford this. Um, but with the shift towards the Pacific and, uh, and of course, the Army's concerned about losing budget market share, it's pretty clear that they might just have a chance in doing this. And, um, you know, the 280 would be expensive, uh, but it would give them the kind of capabilities that they've been dreaming of for years, arguably since the Key West agreement uh, when the Air Force got started. Um, now, the new engine is sort of an interesting commentary. Obviously, um, they were probably going to make a, choice, a, a selection away from the T-64 eventually. They went with pretty much the same engine as on the V-22, yet it's a somewhat uh, a slightly smaller aircraft which implies, of course, a bit more power, a bit more range. Um, it's also, of course, a marine engine. And that to me says what I think many of us have thought for years, which is that the unspoken objective of the V-280 program is to get the Marines to sign on to it uh, as soon as the V-22 winds down, which of course it, it is winding down. Um, it would be a great follow-on system, a great UH-1Y replacement and whatever else. So I, I think there's sort of this moment in time where the, you know, the V280 is maturing. Uh, it has a better chance of actually getting a FARA contract and indeed the FARA getting executed. And on top of that, I, I think even best of all, now that they've got a Marine engine, they're acknowledging the reality that this is a really good plane for the Marines. And I can remember, you know, 10, 20 years ago, something like, oh gosh, 80% of Bell's profits and revenue are coming from the Marines. So this is a space they've been in before. Um, and I think it'll do pretty well. Um, I have a uh, slightly different uh, view, view of that. You have 400 Ospreys that are in service with the United States Marine Corps, the Japan Self-Defense Force uh, as well. Uh, that means two engines, at least on each one of them. Now you have several hundred more engines that would be part of it, right? So you're reducing your support costs overall uh, because you're going to have this, uh, you know, more of these engines in inventory. And if you look at the V280, it is, I think, going to be, as any of the Flora platforms, are going to be particularly important in the Pacific, where you are operating in a much saltier, a much more maritime environment, no matter what it is that you're doing. So even though it does pave the way maybe for a follow-on uh, marine order, the airplane is tailored to an army requirement, right? You're going to have to fold those wings. You're going to have to fold the blades, which are not requirements at this point for the army, although it could be uh, at, at some point from an air transportability standpoint. So I, I think it's more in terms of the overall maritime and marine environment these airplanes are going to spend their time in. Uh, and in that case, it does make sense for you to do, um, you know, some, some of those uh, power plant uh, modifications. And if I could just add to that, you're exactly right. If I could just add to that, boy, it's been a great month for Indianapolis, right? Between this and, of course, the B-52 re-engine contract. So a lot of military work coming their way. 
Um, it is, it is, uh, you know, you, you never want to jinx it, but it, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's safe to say Tom Bell has, has, was, was at least <laughs> so far had a good month Indeed. <laughs> uh, for, for team, uh, team Rolls Royce. There, Ron, is there anything you'd like to add before we part for the week? Yeah, I mean, I think just broadly at AUSA, it, it, you know, one of the themes, again, kind of pulling back to Aperture, it's, you know, how is the Army relevant in a Pacific fight? Um, you know, if we're projecting force in the Pacific with, with the pivot, um, it's, it's, it's clear with the Navy and particularly with, you know, underwater assets. It's clear with the Air Force and, you know, projecting, you know, and, force over long distances, long range strike, space, uh, space force. Um, but you know, my sense is it's still a bit of a more open question with the army um, and, you know, FEL can, you know, pivot, if you will, the army towards that. Uh, but I think that's a bigger thing that has to be answered. Right. Um, and that is going to be, uh, you know, a big focus of this show is going to be uh, obviously on the Pacific because the Army recognizes that it's important to that fight, but it's, you know, still working through what its role is, right? Everybody gets air uh, and space uh, and air, sea and space power. They sort of get over forward in the Pacific, uh, whereas uh, it's a little bit more of a challenge. But ultimately, the Army is going to be integral to that, whether in spec ops forces, whether in missile defense or anything else. Let me we have one minute left. And I have to ask about the Solara 500 L. Um, for some, it's too good to be too, true. One V12 uh, engine pushing a business jet uh, at high speed, high altitude with very, very low operating uh, economics. Uh, it is a somewhat ungainly looking airplane, but at the end of the day, if it works, it doesn't matter. Uh, Richard, 30 seconds, Ron, 30 seconds. Is this gonna be the next amazing breakthrough uh, or the next thing? Uh, Richard, I think you called it powered by unicorn tears. Uh, they've got to cry a lot, but unfortunately there aren't a lot of unicorns out there. So walk us through where you stand on this. And Ron, you're the you're the aerodynamicist, right? Sometimes things that are ungainly are actually remarkably aerodynamic. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I mean, if something seems too good to be true, most of the time it's too good to be true. And in this day and age of people throwing cash at ideas that look appealing but don't require too much surface scratching, see also urban air mobility. Um, I'm a little concerned about this. <laughs> I think they need to show us a lot more data on how they're achieving this remarkable achievement in terms of speed and range for one tiny motor relative to the mass of the aircraft. Right, it's eight, what is it? Eight, eight seats, 500 knots, uh, up to 50,000 feet in altitude and 4,500 miles, right? Yeah, Something that shouldn't like that. work. That shouldn't work, but Ron, well, maybe they have a story. Uh, maybe they've got a unicorn in the back powering it. Go ahead, Ron, last word. Yeah, my understanding is it's, it's, a, it's all about laminar flow. Um, and I don't know, for those who've actually studied laminar flow, laminar flow can be tricky um, it, to keep laminar flow as laminar flow. Um, things have to be really clean. Atmospheric conditions have to be right. A lot of things have to be, be right. So, you know, um, you know I, I guess I don't want to go out on a limb and say, we'll see, but I, th I think we'll see, right? I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do kind of even just in a lab under very controlled conditions. Um, once you're out in the, in the, the, the real world, if you will, um, uh, having something be laminar flow all the time in the right way, in the right places, it's tricky to do. I mean, if it wasn't, um, um, it'd be already be done. 
I am rooting for them big time because if they can if they can nail it, I think it's a game changing airplane, especially at a time when people are worried about carbon uh, footprints uh, and and the like. Guys, thanks very very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a terrific week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Great to be here. And as we wrap the show up, want to uh, again express uh, our deepest condolences uh, to the Odierno uh, family uh, and to the United States Army family uh, for the loss of uh, a great uh, man in the form of General Ray Odierno. Um, he will be missed and he will long be remembered. Thanks very much.